As soon as you feel like your heart start to race, the label's probably no longer serving you. At least then you can always come back to it if you miss it. Be who you are and follow the energy. When you don't, you're missing out. Today's guest is Britt East, an inspirational speaker and author of the book, A Gay Man's Guide to Life, which is a phenomenal book. But don't let the title fool you. What we talk about is for everyone, though some of you have asked for more queer conversations, and this is one of those conversations. We talk about why or how Britt was so bad at dating to the point that he had a spreadsheet. We also talk about this allure of gay people wanting to sleep with straight people and straight people wanting to sleep with gay people. We talk about what it means to be a good lover and how to not worry about killing the mood. And this advice applies to humans. And that's kind of the message that I'm getting from Brit. We place labels we use labels, and it's okay to use those labels as long as they're empowering. It's also okay to stop using them when they become limiting. And at the very core of it all, we are just humans, and we are fumbling through life, and we are doing the best we can. I love this conversation with Brit, and I'm super, super grateful. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Britt, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Britt East. I live in Seattle, Washington, and I am an inspirational speaker and author. And you just wrote a book called A Gay Man's Guide to Life. Uh, details, details. <laughs> That's kind of like a big title for a book. I know, right? Uh, just right out of the gate. Just guide to life, everything you ever need to know. No other book is necessary on your journey, just this one. Is this <laughs> is this, this a good place for, for gay men to start if they, if they are struggling with life? Yeah, I mean, it's basically a catalog of all my mistakes. So yeah, I would say so. Can you just, <laughs> while we're talking about mistakes, <laughs> what's your top, you know, one mistake that you've done um, yeah, answer that, and then I'll give you my perspective on mistakes in general. <laughs> I was the world's worst internet dater. Oh. And so it was just a litany of embarrassing, like, embarrassing situation after another. And I thought I was so good at it. That's the sad thing. And then in retrospect, I was like, oh, my God, I was doing everything wrong. You were a bad online dater. Yeah, it's the worst. I mean, I was, like, comically bad. What does it what does it mean to be bad at online dating? It means that I was self-sabotaging all over the place and completely clueless. So for instance, I dated a lot because I I just thought I needed to get in front of a lot of people and, and it was fun and um so I just went with it and you know, I'm really organized my corporate careers in digital marketing, so I'm used to kind of putting my best foot forward and being really polished and knowing how to work the online space, which is all the things you should not do in online dating, it turns out. Yeah. Wait. I was like trying to engineer an outcome and it was just, oh, 
I did everything wrong. Um, so I have this note here in in the the notes that I took last time we talked. It just says volume dating spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, this is a glimpse into my an embarrassing glimpse into my logical and linear mind. I just I have a terrible memory, and but I am really organized. And so, like I do for anything, I just made a spreadsheet, you know, with it's kind of like the little black book, you know, before the <laughs> internet it was invented, and it just had all of my guys in there, and um, I mean, it wasn't ranked or anything creepy like that. It was just so I could keep things um, kind of together in my brain. But I think it was emblematic of a of a larger issue where I was so I was really controlling. And, I, and so I brought that controlling energy to my dating life, too, which is really what I advise everybody against now, which is more just to be who you are and follow the energy. Back then, I was like, no, I want an outcome. I want this. I want that. And I know how to get it and get out of my way. You know, it was just a disaster. I, I found that being results oriented in love rarely works out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's so classic example of this book being a catalog of my mistakes. I mean, it's just like, don't do what I did and you're going to be great. <laughs> the When you talk about a spreadsheet, I think about when I used to be in sales and I had a CRM, a cu- exactly. customer relationship manager, and I would put in my prospect's name. And then whenever I had a conversation with them, I'd kind of like fill in some notes, you know, the, the names of their children and like yeah. what the wife likes to do. So the next time I talked to them, I'd have some stuff to talk about. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't like, um, like I said, it wasn't creepy and that I wasn't like ranking them and I wasn't putting like weird details in there or anything. It was purely just to help me remember them. So it wasn't like even putting conversation topics or something. It was just like any little thing that would help jog my memory. But the problem was that, that it was emblematic of something else going on and that I was dating too many people. Because I, you know, I was dating beyond my uh, emotional and energetic capacity to authentically represent myself. And um, the fact that I had to have some little database to keep everybody together, my brain should have pointed me out. But it didn't. I was, you know, I was completely like unstoppable. You couldn't stop me. And so (laughs) I just plowed forth dating everybody, you know, everybody that lived in Seattle, I dated them. This is okay. So first of all, we just want everyone to know Brit's not creepy. He just (laughs) has memory. He was dating a lot of people and the memory not so great. Uh, This feels like something that is actually quite common and maybe, maybe more so in the gay dating scene, which is men. And I don't know this because I'm not a gay man, but um, men dating a lot and sort of going on a lot of dates, hooking up a lot. And I've heard this from a few guys saying it's really hard to find a relationship or someone to be in relationship with as a gay man. Has that been your experience? Absolutely. There's a lot of dynamics at play in that scenario. And a lot of it has to do with bigotry um, that we've internalized and weaponized and absorbed through our journey on journeys on this planet. Um, if you know anything about gay history, you'll know that just a few decades ago, many locales had arcane laws that limited the way, the manner, and even the number in which we could congregate. So gay men were effectively not allowed to meet one another hmm. unless you observed these really weird rules like no standing up, no dancing, no sitting down, you know, just whatever kind of the local commission imposed upon us. And what that led to over time, um, along with police raids and, and 
um, societal bigotry and homophobia was that we became really results oriented and we became really transactional to keep ourselves safe. And so it, we started this culture, this cultural dance where we would signal what we were into and who we were into. Um, as we were cruising, in other words, looking for partners. And that would lead to quick transactional exchanges that would hopefully keep us safe. And over time, as that behavior was reinforced, cut to 40, 50 years later, we now have um, internet applications to help us <laughs> do that um, for us. And so um, it's, you know, we're more connected digitally than ever before, but of course, physically and societally, we're less connected. And so we self-sort, we expose our biases and our prejudices, we lead with them in many cases, in fact, because we have unwittingly, inadvertently absorbed these cultural patterns and they've distorted the contours of our lives. Wow. <laughs> I, I appreciate the insight, right? This is something I just don't have a lot of experience in. And I've been getting a lot of messages from, from gay men and from queer folks saying, like, we want more queer content. So first of all, thank you. Oh. For for being able to show share with me like your perspective on this and where this is coming from, right? Like one perspective on on like why it's hard for some gay men to find people to be in relationships with because of this like culture of sort of having to be effective and and efficient and sort of like getting to the point. Um, I've heard about these signs like bandanas or yeah, yeah. certain little like hand signs, like where your hand yeah. is like half in your pocket <laughs> and there's like a way of holding your fingers that will signify different things. So that's cool. I'm, I'm and what I want you to understand, it was deeply alluring. It was the, the fact that you were transgressing societal norms was thrilling. Mm. And there was this dark allure to the entire experience. It felt edgy and outside of the bounds of normalcy, which heightened the sexual thrill. And so with the advent of gay rights, what was invariably lost was some of the illicitness of that behavior. Hmm. And that's what we've struggled with as a community is what is our culture separate and distinct from our relation to the bigotry we have endured? Who are we other than the collection of our negative experiences. And we're still wrestling with that as a people. So, you know, not only was it the dynamic of the police raids or the dynamic of the laws against congregating, um, but it was also the fact that many of us had to draw clear lines of distinction in our personal lives, which actually changed our neurology. Um, we segmented our brains so that Part of our brain was gay when we were engaged in cruising or the sexual act, and part of our brain was not gay when we were closeted or leading our professional or familial or non-sexual lives. And that meant we had to don a lot more masks than the average person, the average straight person out there, which it erodes integrity. And so it's no wonder why we struggle with vulnerability. It's no wonder why we have this epidemic of loneliness decades later. It's really hard to to set down this residual shame and figure out who we truly are and then lead our authentic lives. And that's really what my book is all about. I'm so happy that you went there. Shame, in my experience and in the work that, I, that I've done with my therapist, it's deeply, deeply hard to overcome. 
it has kept me small, right? Shame has kept me small and has kept me from being like the the Sean that I really want to be because I'm scared. I'm scared of what happens if I like take, like you said, like take down the mask. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people, regardless of orientation, struggle with. Yeah, especially guys. I mean, what would happen as a society if we created space for men to cry without shame or fear of rejection, for instance? Yeah, can you answer that question? I'm really- <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, I think it would upend society. I think it would turn everything on its head. I mean, that's how indoctrinated, that's how much we and thoroughly we brainwash our men. What we do to men in this society is criminal. I mean, what we do to others is criminal as well, but it's, you know, I think maybe people are not overly attuned to the amount of masks that the average guy feels they have to wear or is threatened into wearing by other men or or women or people in society. And there are steep consequences for transgressing those those rules, those norms. But how do we start? Like, how how do we start to, like, show people who we really are in a, in a way that isn't uh, scary or hurtful? I think it's all about coming out. Um, coming out has typically been, I think we reduce it to a, a moment that only happens in the lives of, of queer people when we um, first realize that we are outside of the outside of the norm. And really, we closet ourselves on all sorts of issues. Um, you know, maybe we are a big burly man on the outside, but on the inside, we're more like a teddy bear, but we closet ourselves because that mismatch when viewed in society leads towards confusion and consternation and rejection. And so we pretend we're other than we are. That is a closeting behavior. Mm. And so coming out, meaning being more authentic in who we are, is a little active personal resistance that can have large ripple effects. Because people watch each other move through the world. And when you see somebody move through the world with a sense of integrity and authenticity, that is a beacon. That that um, becomes a sort of radiance. When somebody's able to delight in their own self-worth, that is a form of inner radiance that shines bright and calls forth that authenticity in others. <laughs> I love that. It's wh- when people do that, they give others permission. Exactly. Give others permission. And, and I think it's easy to, to sort of um, diminish that, the power of that act. But it is indeed powerful. And I think it's where it all starts. And then once we normalize that, feel our full sense of safety and agency as we are shining our lights, then we can start to lift up others. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also about finding safe people to open up to. Low stakes risks. What's that? Yeah. Taking low stakes risks. Yeah. Low. I like that. Low stakes risks. Yes. The calculated risk with people that have been established as mostly safe in small measured ways over time and then, you know, more and more disclosures uh, rather than full blurting out, you know, your deepest, darkest secrets to anybody that'll, that'll listen. There's a, there's a way to do it. That's, that's safer. That's safer and allows people to, to like explore a little bit more. Yeah. Here's how I think of it. Um, I'll say it in like the, through the gay cultural lens and then we can translate it to for everybody is that in a, in a society steeped in straight supremacy, All of us make homophobic choices from time to time, even gay people. And so I like to think that there are no homophobes, quote unquote, out there. There are only homophobic choices. Mm. And so writ large, to apply to everybody, 
we are just the sum of our choices. It's our deeds that define us. And so we often penalize ourselves by saying, I'm a good person or a bad person, or I'm this or that, instead of saying, no, today I made this choice or that choice and tomorrow I can do better or worse or what mm. have you. And I think, I mean, maybe it's just because of my, like I said, I'm really logical and linear, but when I look at it through the lens of one choice after another, adding up to becoming my integrity over time, that feels a lot more manageable and malleable than thinking like, oh, I'm just this or I'm all that. That feels defeatist to me. And and so I think we can all make one different choice after another. And then, you know, a year from now, we'll be surprised by how many miles we have walked and how different our lives have become. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Small action over time done consistently can change a life completely. Absolutely. Completely. Well, I like what you're saying uh, in the context that, you know, uh, identifying as a certain thing is actually very limiting. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't identify as a gay man, but because I've mostly dated women. But I've also blown a couple dudes, you know? So uh, if I identified as a, as a strictly heterosexual man, I wouldn't be able to have those experiences. And if I did have those experiences, I'd probably experience a whole lot of cognitive dissonance, yeah. right? I'm a straight man, but I had a, a, a sexual encounter with another man. What does that mean about me? Actually, am I not straight? Am I gay? I could feel a lot of shame around it. And... There was definitely some confusion, but I never felt shameful about it. I didn't think there was actually anything wrong with it. Well, that's fantastic. I think you might be in the minority, unfortunately. <laughs> Here's how I think of it, and it's a little bit differently than, than others. I think that most people, over the course of their lives, experience some moments, however fleeting, however intense, of same-sex attraction. And in some cases, we act on those feelings of same-sex attraction. And in no case does that necessarily define our sexual orientation or our sexual culture. In other words, um, I identify as a gay man. If I would have sex with a woman, I would likely still identify with as a gay man afterwards. Right. It doesn't. You can't draw a conclusion based on that one shared experience about my sexual orientation or my sexual culture, my orientation being homosexual, my cultural, my culture being gay. Now, maybe it's the start of a new chapter because these things can be fluid or fixed. So maybe I'm actually my my orientation's entering into a new phase of um, maybe I'm entering into more of a bisexual or more of a pansexual phase. The point is that labels don't have to define us. They're thrilling at first and can be really empowering as we learn to accept new parts of ourselves, particularly parts that fly in the face of societal norms. But over time, there's diminishing returns. Over time, those labels lose their luster. And what I advise people to do is be pragmatic. When the labels feel empowering and exciting to embrace them and run with them, and then as soon as they feel limiting, to start to shed them aside. I have slept with enough straight guys to know 
that nature does not <laughs> respect our self-sorting. Take it from me. Okay, a couple things here. Uh, <laughs> I love your pragmatism. I'm a very pragmatic man, and a lot of my advice is, is sort of like, hey, you know what? Do this until you don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. You know, like if this other person's advice worked for you, awesome. That's great. I'm so happy for you. You found yeah. something that resonates with you. And so I really love this the, this liberty that you um, are inviting people to, to step into, which is use a label if it makes sense, if it's empowering, if it feels good, if it sheds layers, and then if yeah. it becomes restrictive or limiting or you feel claustrophobic, then step out of it. Yeah, we get so spun up and like, oh my God, am I gay now because I was attracted to this woman? And it's like, am I straight now? If I'm, I'm like, let it go. <laughs> as soon as you feel like your heart start to race, the label's probably no longer serving you. At least then you can always come back to it if you miss it. But let it go. There's no, Just be who you are and follow the energy. When you don't, you're missing out. I love and follow. <laughs> We constrain ourselves all over the place and we miss out. And that's what I was so thought was so cool about your story. You got to share in some of these beautiful experiences with these people that you would have missed out on had you piled all sorts of shame on top of yourself. That's that's right. I could have missed out on meeting some dude on AOL San Jose Men for Men. <laughs> Invited him to a community center bathroom in Los Gatos and blown him. I could have missed out on that as a 16-year-old teenager and then saw the guy again a year later at community college and like was mortified. Um, And I still remember that he drove like like a late 80s red Dodge Dart. Like not a cool car, you know? Um, So, yeah, I like that. I like the, the freedom. I like the freedom. And I also am curious about uh, you having slept with straight guys. And like, how was that experience on your side? And how do you think that experience was on their side? Well, I don't, I always wonder how much straight guys know about gay society, but gay guys have a thing about straight guys um, for all sorts of reasons. One is the, we are sold and marketed to daily. We are saturated in straight male masculine imagery that over time we start to absorb that and think that equals beauty. Mm. And if we're not careful and if we're not closely monitoring our pornography usage and um, you know the conversations that we have, then we can actually start to think that masculine is the only form of beauty, that that gender expression is beautiful and feminine is ugly. And that can turn into misogyny and in internalized homophobia and lead us to all sorts of um, dark places. So when it, when gay guys struggle with their attraction to straight men, when we fear or fetish straight guys, I always think it's important to inquire, what is a straight guy? Like, what are we really talking about? What are we really attracted to? And as soon as you start to really look in the mirror and go through a rigorous inquiry about, you know, where these thoughts come from and what you're really getting into, it all kind of falls apart uh, like a house of cards. I mean, when you think about what even really is, and I kind of go into this in the book, it's like, what even really is a man? 
you know, what are we talking, you know, from the, from the gender orientation perspective, what is it a man? Is it body parts that we're attracted to? Is it vitality? Is it some energy? Is it mm. their cultural societal space? And so when you keep straight on top of it, it's like, what are we really attracted to? And, and anytime th- there's a constant debate in the gay community about is this a preference or is this a prejudice or a bias? Um, anytime we're saying to ourselves, hey, I'm only attracted to Asians or I don't like Asians at all. or I'm only attracted to straight guys. I think these sorts of red flags, it's like the little they're, they're like the tip of the iceberg. And often underneath, the, you know, none of this happens in a vacuum. And I think often underneath, if we really were to expose some rigorous honesty on it, we would see that there's some misogyny at play some racism at play that we either absorbed or participated in unwittingly. And by looking at those and exploring it and by starting to see people in their full humanity, then all of that just kind of falls apart. And so my experiences with straight guys were not because they were straight. It just, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, you're straight. Right. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) Unexpected. You know, but this is something that in all honesty, you know, peeling back the curtain on the gay community somewhat, this is something that we struggle with and wrestle with, whether it's a sexual cultural identification, the gender expression, or it's a, a, a racial identity. I mean, we really as gay people struggle with this. What I'm hearing is that you followed the energy in a couple different ways or times, and it led the energy kind of led to a, a man that wasn't used to sleeping with other guys. Yeah, exactly. And there were all sorts of learnings out of that. Lots of things I learned about myself and about the other person that I would have missed had I been close to that experience. I guess I'm curious, what what would you, I mean, what did you learn from those experiences? Um, well, one thing I learned is that straight guys aren't necessarily very good at gay sex. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that is not surprising at all. <laughs> well, it's, I think it surprised a lot of your listeners, but it's, I mean, you've, you've been open-minded enough to participate. So, But it's like, they're just not necessarily tuned into it. So they've never thought through it. They've never, you know, there's, it's a, there's different issues at play. And so th- maybe it's their first time. Maybe they're, they're like, kind of like, um, kind of stumbling and fumbling through this experience because they've never done it before. So they might be a little ham-handed. And, you know, so it's like, oh, okay, well, that kills that fantasy. You know, that's that's can be one of those, uh, one of the learnings. The the other made, I mean, the main learning that I had was where I started with it's really people are people and these labels are really our response to society. And the labels don't define our energy or our personhood. They're just a societal construct. Society is a construct. We respond to that with a construct and we create, all, we get spun up in all these stories about it Mm. but if we just kind of strip it down to the experience and share and love as we as we encounter it i think that's where we meet the richness of life yeah just one person connecting with another yeah and that that might happen naked or several people or several people that's right (laughs) yeah we're not discriminating here against morsums or whatever um that's funny. So what does it <laughs> what does it mean to be good at gay sex, I guess? Well, I mean there's some mechanics involved. There's just in logistics it takes, you know, can take some planning. It depends on what's on the menu. Oh, some and 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 a lot of a lot of straight guys maybe have not thought through like the the, the various courses of the menu. And so they're, That's they're right. like they're surprised. So, yeah, there's some planning involved. I mean, if if there's anal yeah. exploration, there might you know like what did you have for lunch? How a lot? When was your last bowel movement? You know all that all that stuff. One of the things I realize is that giving a blowjob is uh, very it's hard. 
There's technique. There's technique, the jaw, there's the neck, the whole. I mean, it's it's like a physical act. <laughs> it's way more physical than going down on a woman. Going down on a woman, it's like, you know, can be fairly static, right? As long as you, hmm. I'm a big fan of getting the the positioning right, you know, with mm. pillows and and sure. props and, and the whole, um, you know, ergonomically, <laughs> there's some ergonomic issues with, uh, with giving head to a man. It's like, it's a very physical act. I was not very good at it. I'll just be honest with you. I was, well, it takes practice. Yeah. I it's, mean, it's like anything. I don't think any of us are good at it to begin with. It takes practice. And so a lot of times we end up being the docent. Like, okay, let me be your gay tour guide, Mr. Straight Guy, and let me show you how to push all the right buttons and say all the right things and, you know, insert tab A into slot B. And, and it's like that can kind of detract from the overall experience. Yeah, sure. And it can be – that can be exciting. Absolutely. Exactly. So – uh Speaking of this, like leading someone through an experience, I, uh, let's see, how long ago was this? Maybe seven years ago, I was flirting with a lesbian woman in uh, like a group that where I would like see people over and over again. And she and I just like were flirty. We were mm. flirty and she was like obvious lesbian, you know, like some, some I think some folks are like, a little bit more undercover or they can like pass as straight. Mm -hmm. Anyways, this was like, she was a lesbian and um, we were flirting, but I just thought it was like innocent flirting between two people mm -hmm. and I was just being playful. And then one day she comes up to me and she was like, hey, I'd really love to talk to you about uh, maybe having sex with you. And I was oh, like, wow. whoa, okay, this is, I wasn't expecting this because generally like when people uh, aren't, interested in me like whether they're in a relationship or they have like an orientation that isn't mine like i don't i don't pursue it i don't like really mm -hmm. like explore it or i even they don't even like fantasize about it so it kind of came out of left field and i was like oh i'd love to at least talk about it like it's not something that i want to um, commit to right away but maybe we can have tea and we can talk about it and so i invited her over to my house and we had tea and i wanted to like be a little, I want to understand like what she wanted to get out of the experience. So I, I like approached it from more of like a curiosity perspective and not so much as a like, Oh, I'm going to get to sleep with a lesbian type of thing, yeah, which I think yeah. is like kind of, it's exciting. Right. I think like maybe even as a gay man getting to sleep with a straight man, there's like a thing there. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so I didn't want it to be like that. I actually wanted to, to be more curious about her experience. Like, what was she wanting to get out of the experience? Mm. Like, what did she have in mind? And um, it was really beautiful. We were able to create this, mm. like, really safe space. And I was also curious about, like, why me? You know, what about me made her want to reach out to me and she said that she had never slept with a man before. She had never even like made out with a man before, but she was feeling attracted to me and she felt like that I would be a safe person to explore that with. That's incredible. Yeah. And it was a really fun experience. Like I said, look, I, I'm happy to do this. Like it's super exciting. I am also attracted to you and there's something really exciting about this. So yeah, let's do it. And also like, I want you to basically run sort of like you take the lead and I'll, I'll be there with you and I'll check in along the way and like, let's co-create something that's fun for both of us. And, you know, let's also talk about our fears, de our desires, fears, and boundaries. Like, what do we want? What are you scared of? And what is an absolute no? And one of the things that she said, she was like, I want to, I want you to penetrate me. I don't want to suck your dick. And I was like, cool. 
that's great. Like, awesome. That's really good to know. And then at some point during the encounter, she was like, okay, I now really want to suck your dick. And I was like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's also cool. Let's, let's try that, you know? And um, it was just a really beautiful, fun experience. And I'm so grateful that I was able to have that with this person that felt safe enough to do that with me. Well, you know what I love that I think so many of us miss out on is the um, container you created. I mean, it can sound kind of maybe antiseptic when, while we're just kind of talking about it here, but there's a way to make that so sexy where you're establishing boundaries and is that kind of continuous consent. And um, rather than just kind of crossing your fingers and then rolling over afterwards and like, you know, did you make it through? Okay. You know, and leaving it to chance. I love that you created a whole sort of, um, container for it so it's like you know you approached it really mindfully in a way that was still really sexy but it was safe as well i think i think we need more of that oh yeah and and there's you know it it, it can be done well it really can it's and an art it's it, it's a little bit of an art uh, I, I mean i have a course called the intro to great sex and I, we talk about a lot of this like how to create yeah. a sexy and safe and exciting container how to talk about desires fears and boundaries and i really think that nowadays this whole like nonverbal consent, let's just wing it and use the script that we think we know works like that's that doesn't fly anymore. Yeah, I, I think this is one where um, I, I hope you have a lot of uh, male listeners because I, I suspect that maybe the maybe I'm just biased against guys, but I suspect guys kind of struggle with this. Um, the, the guys that I speak to, I think worry are so focused on not killing the mood that they err on the side of chance. (laughs) And, um, when, you know, maybe not realizing that this can actually enhance the mood if done well, if you take the time to learn the art and practice the art, it can actually really enhance the experience. I don't know that I has, have ever killed a mood by talking about sex. I feel like if anything, it it in it enhances the mood. Yeah, I I agree with you. I wonder if if maybe some guys are sitting there listening to us, maybe a little skeptical. But I think that you, I I think that people will find if they try it, if they take the time to learn some basic techniques, like you said, you teach a course in it. If you take the time to learn some basic techniques, it's really not that difficult. It's an art that has to be practiced. But I think that you will find it can really be surprisingly erotic. Do you have, okay, so first of all, a couple of things. First of all, I don't think my audience is primarily men. If I just mm. extrapolate, mm-hmm. you know, my my social media um, audience, because you you can't get the gender split on podcasts. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing more more women than men listen. And if you are listening to this and you're a woman, share this episode with a guy yeah. in your life, right? Like a friend, your partner, whatever. Share this with them so that they can kind of get a different perspective. Absolutely. Um, and if you're a dude and you're listening to this. I'm so glad that you're here. I know that for a, a long time, I've been sort of uh, thanking all of the women that show up, but I want to thank the guys that show up also. And I know I know that there are some of you listening. And if you're listening, share this with one of your guy friends, right? So like, I think that it's really important that we start normalizing talking about relationships and normalizing uh, talking about sex. And if we go back to an earlier point, normalizing crying, 
showing emotion, mm-hmm. being more quote unquote feminine, like lowering the mask of masculinity. So if you're listening to this, share share this episode with people so that um, A, you can you know start to discover Brit and his work and also so that we can start doing this work together of being more vulnerable and developing the tools to have these kinds of conversations. And my question for you, Britt, is, uh, okay, what is a tool that you might have that you can share with us um, about how we can like not kill the mood? And then I'll share one of mine. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that guys need to do is to learn how to sit with all the sensations that arise through the course of making love. Right. And I mean the the entire arc, not just the orgasm, not just the penetration, not just the foreplay, but the entire arc, because that's what's going to make us better lovers on a practical level, but also on an energetic level in terms of empathy and awareness of what our partner is experiencing. Learning to sit with those sensations, and it starts outside of the bedroom, like we were talking about earlier, learning to sit with your tears. Hmm learning to sit with your fears, learning to sit with your desire in a way that doesn't cause you to explode. So many times when I think a lot of, I've witnessed a lot of men cry, it's an explosion of tears because it's been um, <laughs> suffocated and tamped down for generations. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. For the, the tears of their forefathers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, great, great, <laughs> yeah. great grandpa. Exactly. And it's like if we normalized all of those experiences, and it's all one art, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The yoga, the union of of life, of all of this is one art. And so, if we, so one, one thing you can do to become a better lover, to um, tap into this, is to normalize the sensations of desire, of um, of fear, of loss, of pain, because it's all going to go into the soup that will make you a better lover. Mm, I love that. Yeah, sit with your emotional experience, whether yeah. it's pleasant or unpleasant. Right. I don't, I don't like to describe emotions as negative or positive. I think all emotions mm. are teachers and they, um, they have a story. They have, there's a reason why they're there. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a teaching there. And so, but some of them are, are much more pleasant than others. You know, desire is more pleasant than, than grief for sure. Uh, but they're all necessary. They're all necessary. And like you said, when you bottle it in for so long, it's going to come out in some way, shape, or form. And oftentimes these blow-ups, these, these burnouts, these eruptions, they, they come at a really untimely space. Yeah, and think about it. Like, have you ever known a truly wonderful lover who is not also a wonderful communicator or listener? Uh, I, <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Well, they, they that. <laughs> but but there is there is like some some ex- well, I, I think there was some exciting attachment drama that was mm. driving a lot of the excitement. And actually, I'm going to retract that statement. She was not a good communicator. So there you go. Mm. To your point. Thank you, Brent. <laughs> um, my tip is, you know, to, to move away from this fear of uh, killing the mood is that your level of desire and your excitement and your arousal absolutely comes and goes. So don't be scared of losing your Mm. erection or losing your libido or your arousal. It 100% can come back. 
So it's not just like a bell curve, right? Where arousal goes up until there's orgasm and then it goes down and then it's over. You can play with that in more of like a roller coaster style graph if you can just yeah i love that i think so many of us guys think of it's like a mountain that we're climbing and our goal is to get to the top of that mountain yeah no yes and yes yes no it's not (laughs) it can be it absolutely can be and sometimes it is sometimes the sexual encounter is really you know, a race to the top and then, and then it's sort of like a ski jump, right? (laughs) It goes all the way up and then, and then all the way down. But for me, what's more exciting is sort of like a a longer lovemaking session, if time permitting, time and partner permitting, and playing with desire and playing with energy so that if there's a drop in desire on either person's part, it's okay. It doesn't mean that the session is over. Uh, If it is over, that's also okay. Um, And, that you can play with that. And just because you lose your erection doesn't mean that, that it's over or that there aren't like a myriad of things that you can also be doing, right? Sex doesn't require boner. There we go. Yeah, I mean, that's beautiful because especially in the gay world, we've been conditioned by our pornography to think that the boner is really um, the only thing to pay attention to <laughs> in the room. That's the, the focal point of the room is the boner. And then once the boner is gone, the experience is done and, and you go about the rest of your day. And, and so we've cut ourselves off from the totality of the experience, the full range of emotions. It's like playing a symphony rather than playing a little tune on your recorder. I guess that's a bad metaphor now that I think about that. No, I mean, I, I, you know, it's the, the, the recorder, I mean, it's, we all learn to play the recorder in school, uh, it, but a recorder concert isn't as, as exciting as a full concerto. There you go. Uh, and it's also, you know, a recorder is not very subtle. Yeah. Um, a violin, you know, all that yeah. stuff, that, that can be nice and subtle. So I, I like this idea of like uh, playing with subtlety in sexual encounters as well. Um. And yeah, when you pause and you slow down, right? So to your point, can you slow down enough to feel what's coming up? Can you slow down enough to feel your partner and what's coming up for them? And can you be curious about what's coming up for them, right? And so that does require some communication. That does require, you know, one of my favorite questions when something's coming up for my partner is to say, what's coming up for you? Mm-hmm. And not to assume that I know what, what's happening. Every time that I've guessed, I've guessed wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Like if there's a tear, I'll be like, oh, you know, and I'll guess something. It's always wrong. But when I ask what's coming up for you, then I'm always delighted by this thing that like, I, I wasn't expecting at all. Yeah, I'm lucky in that realm that my partner is completely, my husband is completely inscrutable. And so I have no clue what is going on. And so I'm just forced to ask. So... <laughs> Like I'm right there with you. Anything I would, any story that I would write would just be so entirely, so thoroughly wrong that it's like, you know, I'm, I have to ask. So it keeps me on my best behavior. So I think we've done a pretty good job of giving people some tools on uh, how to not worry about killing the mood. Um, And now you just mentioned your partner. So I'm kind of curious, where'd you meet and how long have you been together? So we've um, been together for 11 years, and uh, we are married and monogamous, and we met online. I am, like I said, I was the world's worst online dater, but he was the best, so I was lucky. 
So we met in the middle. How did? How was he the best? Like I think it was the third person he ever dated. Like online, I mean, mm. it's uh, so he's clearly a virtuoso at it. Where I was like maybe the three hundredth person, and um, so it was uh, you know it all kind of happened pretty quickly on his end. But you know, I was I had of course just thrown away my spreadsheets in a moment of disgust, and then in he walks. <laughs> And was completely different than anybody that I would have cast in the role because, you know, it was over engineering everything. And so that is that I think is really what caught my eye was that he was so different than than anybody that I would have put on my spreadsheet. Mm. And, you know, we probably dated for. Um, you know, let's say a year and then, um, I moved in with them and here you are 11 years later. Yeah. Here we are with lots of changes in the legal system and somehow the state forced us to get married and through all sorts of weird machinations, we, um, we are here as husband and husband, which, which is so strange to say, I cannot tell you that I, I had no emotional attunement to the concept of marriage that had been thoroughly drained from my consciousness. I thought I would be dead in my 20s. I grew up in 1980s Tennessee at the height of the AIDS epidemic at least in the U.S., and the idea that anybody, it, you know, two guys could get married one day was not in my consciousness. Mm. And so I, I didn't have any rites of passage to lead me down that path. I didn't have any fantasies or daydreams. And so when the state kind of interceded and said, okay, you either have to split up or get married, it was just, we kind of looked at each other and were like, what, what does this mean? I, you know, it was a really awkward conversation. Wait, so you had to, well, I'm sorry, I guess I'm not familiar with what happened in Kentucky. Was this in Kentucky? No, this was in Washington state. We were already in, in Seattle. And um, this, the, the way the legal system was that um, you could be civil partners um, in a same-sex relationship, but you could not be legally married. And then when the U.S. Supreme Court granted us that right, the state of Washington said, okay, all civil partnerships will be dissolved on this date, which was not that far in the future, by the way. You will either be single, living in sin, or you will be married, living in more sin. And so which do you choose? Because you cannot stay how you are. So you, you would basically lose whatever... Yeah. benefits you had as a, to pick a major in a civil partnership yep you were going to be completely single or comp that whole institution was dissolved well according to the state you'd be single. according to the state exactly. yeah and were there tax benefits there's no state income tax i mean we're kind of getting the there's no state income tax so there wasn't that consideration but there's other things like hospital visits and stuff you know there's all sorts of reasons <laughs> to, to be married but hey this is all part of the deal we're talking yeah. about washington gay marriage laws <laughs> on my podcast whatever yeah cover it all it applies to some people yeah yeah so so yeah we had to make that choice but because neither of us had that emotional connection to the concept and because we'd never discussed it with each other before we just didn't have any criteria to evaluate it. We just looked at each other and like, oh, you know, not wanting to say anything wrong or hurtful, not knowing what it would mean. And <laughs> I don't want to get know, married. It was really <laughs> awkward. Exactly. It's like, ah, I don't know anymore. Yeah. 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 It's sort of a make or break. It's sort of a catalyst, right? It's a catalyst. Yeah. Uh, and and so it sounds like you made it through there. Yeah, yeah. So, so we decided to get married for pragmatic reasons. Um, we did not have a wedding. So we got married just purely for legal reasons because it, 
in the end, we were like, it just felt like it did not change any of the emotional truth of our relationship. It was purely about the legal issues and, and everything else. And also celebrating the fact that we could, but you know, we, um, so we, we had, we got rings, but we did not have a ceremony. Yeah, this feels in line with how some people are approaching marriage nowadays. Yeah. It's like pragmatic. There's deductions that you can take. There's, yeah. uh, and then some, and some people like the institute of marriage isn't that important, but a ceremony is nice, right? Like yeah. some sort of commitment. So I guess what I, what I want to say is that you can do whatever you want in your relationship as long as both people are on board. Absolutely. I've been to beautiful weddings of two guys getting married. That was absolutely wonderful. It just was not what we chose to do in that moment. <laughs> so a couple of things that you said earlier, uh, you were bad at dating. He was good at dating. And actually, I'm going to back up even more. You, you wrote the book because you made some mistakes. And I don't believe in mistakes. And I think that you probably don't either in the sense that uh, it's only a mistake if you don't learn something from it. And, I, and I'm guessing that since you wrote a book, yeah. you learned a lot <laughs> lessons from the experiences that you have, which like we can call mistakes because people understand what we're saying. When you say that you were bad at dating and, and he was good at dating, you had to be bad at dating so that you can meet him. Yeah, right? Exactly. If you were better at dating, you wouldn't have met him. It'd be somebody else. It's absolutely true. We've been some other poor schmuck out there yeah. who's saddled with all these insecurities. Wow, <laughs> we, we all have insecurities. <laughs> it's like pick pick the insecurities yeah. that you want to deal with for the rest of your life. Exactly. And that's exactly. probably what uh, what's going to happen because I, I think we, we slowly work on our insecurities, but they never fully leave us. And we're all wounded you know we're not broken but we're wounded every single one of us is dealing with our insecurities and our core wounds and our childhood attachment issues and you know some people for sure are more compatible than others absolutely but there is no healed fully healed person uh, that is a perfect fit that you will meet to have a frictionless relationship with yeah and that was the other way that i was really bad at dating was that I did not have the twinkle in my eye. And I think that twinkle is a result of delighting in your own self-worth. Hmm. And at that time, I was still struggling with that. And so I approached dating more like a samurai or yeah. <laughs> some sort of a warrior, something that I was going to conquer. Yeah. And so I, I don't think that I had that little playful, you know what I mean, that twinkle in your eye that's really attractive. And so I think that I got a lot of what I put out, mm. you know? Yeah, this, I mean, this is classic. People dating online yeah. are looking for a dopamine hit. So they're swiping, yeah. they're swiping. Yeah. They're not really invested in connection. It's more about how is it going to make them feel to get a new match. And then so then you're results oriented. You, you know, you've got the focus on the goal. And so you go into a date and you're just, mm -hmm. you know, you're like recruiter looking for the, yeah. just the right yeah, fit. <laughs> it was a job interview. It's a job interview. Yeah. yeah. And when you, Doesn't when you, fun? no, it's not fun for, <laughs> it's not fun. I've been there. I've been there. So I, I can relate. I can relate. And, and usually what happens is I need to remove myself from the dating yeah. pool because yeah. there's something that, you know, I'm, I'm just not connected. I'm not 
even there for connection. I'm there to make myself feel better. Exactly. Because I'm, I'm lonely and I'm sad. And coming from a place of fear, scarcity, and deprivation. Yep. There you go. FSD. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that is a particularly dangerous combo. Yeah. Approaching yeah, anything was... from that perspective is, is dangerous. And that was my MO. And so I glibly, and of course I agree with you, what you say about mistakes, and I kind of glibly call it that. But that was my orientation for a lot of years for all sorts of really valid reasons. You know, pretending otherwise, invalidating the reasons would be um, kind of selling myself out. There were really valid reasons. It was an, it was a rational response. It was just a tactic that was had worn out its welcome. Mm. And it just took me a little bit longer than might have been appreciated to find some new tactics, <laughs> develop some new skills to, to, to lead me to a place where I could make healthier choices that were more based in abundance. It takes time. Yeah, seasoning. It's taken me a lot of time also to, you know, quote unquote, figure my shit out and to start turning towards love and not away from it. Because that's what I did for a long time. I was just... It's scary. It's scary, everybody. Okay, if you're listening (laughs) and you're scared, it's okay. Join the club. Join the club. Yeah, the club (laughs) is huge. It's vast. The water's warm. Come on in. And it's always scary. I mean, you get better at... You get better at holding the sensations of fear. Yeah. But when you expose yourself vulnerably, there's always a thrilling, fearful element associated with it. And it's scary for different reasons, right? You just, yeah. you, you adapt, you grow, and you hit new levels of intimacy, new levels of vulnerability that you didn't think you'd ever be able to get to. And congratulations, you got there. And now it's just, it's one more, one more deeper level, right? We're just peeling the layers of the onion. Just keep peeling. Keep peeling, keep crying, keep peeling. <laughs> the more you peel, the more you cry. Uh, and the more you heal, right? Like this stuff does get better. Like I don't think we'll ever be fully healed because life is traumatic and it just keeps fucking knocking us down in different ways that we didn't think were possible. And so we're always healing, but but the core stuff of our childhood, like that stuff needs to be tended to. Absolutely. And I think what happens is we learn new ways to frame our experiences. Hmm. Um, in other words, when we understand that we can use any experience to learn to enrich our lives and love more deeply, that totally transforms our orientation to grief and loss. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. The constant new perspective as we grow, we just get like a new lens on ourselves. And and hopefully my lens is that I'm like, I'm just softer towards myself. Mm. And I I think that's, for me, that's where I I need to like spend a lot of energy is just being soft and kind and loving to myself. The more I do that with me, the more I can do that with others. Way, way easier. Yeah, and that's the sign of strength, that flexibility, balance, that supple approach to life. That's ironically, I mean, so much of life is a series of paradoxes and that this paradox that strength comes from vulnerability. It's a sign of strength. Um, you know, I think that's another way to reframe our way of walking and moving through the world. Um, you know, whether it's becoming a better lover or an employee or spouse or friend or you know, relative, what have you. It's not changing who we are, but if we change our frame, I think that it will unlock a lot of richness that may have passed us by. Mm. 
I think some people are going to struggle with this idea that vulnerability is strength and not weakness <laughs> because society tells you vulnerability exactly. is, is weakness, right? If you, if you open yourself up, if you put down the shield, you're going to get hurt. You will. That's a, that's a guarantee. You will get hurt. <laughs> hey, look, you're going to get hurt no matter what, whether you got a shield or not. Uh, and, and walking around without a shield is a lot easier, actually, it turns out. Yeah. Shields are heavy. They're heavy and they're cumbersome and they, they're limiting. Yeah. The only thing more painful than loving is not loving. Hmm. I can get behind that. <laughs> I can get behind that, but not loving is it's much safer. It's safer, yeah. but it's smaller. So if you want a small, little, safe life, then, then shield up. Yeah. And uh, if you want a big, wide, expansive, kind of scary, but very exciting Mm -hmm. life, uh, then open up, open up and do it slowly over time. Yeah. And that's where the richness of life is in the messiness. The richness of life is in the messiness. I'm going to get a lot of quotes out of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us, where can we find you and your book? So my website is the hub for all of my work, BritEast.com, and I have all sorts of free articles. I have a free blog on the website, um, links to all my social medias, all of that's free. And then it also has a books page where you can find your favorite online store to purchase the book. And you've been really busy on podcasts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's been fantastic. The whole the response to this book in general has blown my mind. I thought it would just be like this little thing I do and, you know, maybe, you know, my husband would buy it and a couple friends and that would be it. But it has been overwhelming. I get letters every day from people all over the world because it's available globally in audio format and ebook and paperback, hardcover, all of it. It's so humbling. It's just been an honor. It's been an absolute privilege and an honor and I beyond my wildest dreams. Wow. I'm really happy for you. Yeah. Thank you. So final question, what does love mean to you? Love for me is a verb. It is the selfless extending of our energy in the name of someone else's care, comfort, or spiritual growth. Boom. My God. I just made that up on the fly, so I'm like, did I miss anything? I think that's it. (laughs) I'm going to have to write that one down. (laughs) Britt, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for spending this hour with Britt and me today. And if this podcast means a lot to you and it is having a positive impact on your life and you would be sad if the podcast ceased to exist, then I'm inviting you to make a monthly contribution to my work by going to thelovedrive.com forward slash join and put your money where your heart is for as little as $5 a month, which might be a lot to some of you. It might be not that much to others. But to me, your contributions compounded, all of your contributions, makes a significant impact in my life. It really, really, really does. So if you're in a position to help, go to thelovedrive.com forward slash join. And for everybody who already does, thank you so much. And if you're not in a position, don't worry. Keep listening. Have a beautiful week.